Do you ever feel lost at the end of a journey? Now that's a weird question because if you were to feel lost, where would you expect to feel lost in a journey? Maybe at the beginning, maybe at the middle, but not at the end. At the end of the journey is the last place that you should feel lost. But the reality is there are times where we can go down a journey, we can go down a path, we can reach what we think is the end and feel lost. What now? What am I supposed to do? This morning, we are at the end of a journey. It's a journey we started almost a year and a half ago. 51, this is our 51st message in the Gospel of John. This is our last message in the Gospel of John. We've reached the end. We've had the climax last week. But there's a question. What now? Have you ever reached the end of something and find yourself asking that question, what now? What do I do next? Maybe you've experienced that as you've ended a phase in life. Maybe you, you went to, you, you graduated high school. What now? You went to college. You, you, you understood, no, I need to get this degree. You got the degree. What now? Maybe you've finished something. Maybe you're at the end of your work. You're retired. What now? Maybe you've experienced that during a period of transition. You just moved. You've gone to a new place. You've moved to a new job. You are in a new, uh, new city. What now? Maybe you've experienced that after loss, death, sickness, tragedy, what now? It's even possible to experience after great gain, you finish a task that you've been working so hard on. I, I experienced that in a small degree a couple weeks ago where I'm like, oh shoot, we are about to be done, John. And I thought we had a lot more messages left. There's like three. Now what? Where are we going next? We do know where we're going next. Now what? What's next? As we reach the end of John, we have seen John's purpose in writing. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's where we've been traveling. That was the finish line that we've been trying to get to. We got to that point. We see Thomas's response. He was doubting. He said, I will never believe. But then finally, he reaches this point. He sees Jesus, and he has this incredible confession, my Lord and my God. And that's what John wants for us. These things are written so that you may believe. But now what? What do we do now? It's a question I believe all of the disciples are asking in some way or another, but probably none of them are asking the question to the degree that Peter is. Peter doesn't have physical scars from the last 
several days of this last, these last chapters, but he definitely has some emotional ones. In this passage, for the first time, we see some, something we've, we've never seen from Peter before. Uncertainty. He doesn't know what to do next. Peter's always the one that knows exactly, and even if he doesn't know, he still thinks he knows. He's always the guy that's ready to move and to do something. We see that all throughout all of the Gospels, that Peter is willing to take the step forward, sometimes to his detriment when he says things that he shouldn't, but then sometimes to his glory. Peter, what you are saying has been revealed to you. But we're at this moment here, and and there's some some silence from Peter. There's some uncertainty. Peter's a little lost. He's seen Jesus two times since the resurrection. Christ has given them a commission, a purpose. But what does that even look like? What is he supposed to do now? But then to make it worse for Peter, what about my past? Peter remembers what just happened. Peter remembers that Jesus told him it was going to happen, and he did it. All four Gospels make a point of mentioning Peter's denial. Jesus, what what now in light of my failure? Even as later in the passage, he's going to ask, well, what, what about everyone else? What about him? I don't know about you, but I I really identify with Peter in this passage. So often I know what Christ has called me to do, but I'm uncertain in how to progress. I don't know what to do now. Equally often, my own past gets in the way. My guilt because of my own failures. And if not that, I'm distracted by what others are doing and neglect to focus on what I'm meant to do. So often, I reach the end of the journey and I feel lost. What am I supposed to do now? Here's the beauty of our Jesus. He knows where we are and he comes to us. He knows our condition. He knows we are prone to wander. He knows we will fail. He knows we will lose our way. He knows all of these things. He knows everything, as Peter's going to say, and he comes to us and leads us and calls us to follow. Here's our big idea this morning. Jesus graciously meets us where we are to lead us where he wants us to be. We can't get where we want to be in our own strength. This journey that we're going on is not really the end. In a lot of ways, this is the beginning. Where Thomas and the disciples have come to place their faith in Jesus is the beginning of the journey for the rest of their lives that goes into all eternity. What was the result that John said? You will have eternal life, life in his name. This is the beginning of that life. You were dead, but now because you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are alive. But that journey that we're on now, that we're going for, if Jesus were only two steps in front of us, that would be two steps too far for us to ever reach. 
There is nothing we can do to reach where Christ is. Christ isn't waiting for us further down the road because we could never get there. Jesus has to come to where we are. That's the story of John. That's where the gospel of John begins. So look now, John 21, verse 1. This is what it says. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Right from the start, we find that Jesus is revealing himself. This is outside of Jerusalem. They've already left. We don't know how much time is here in between chapter 20 and chapter 21, but it's been some time, and the disciples have gone back to Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias would be the Sea of Galilee. And what Jesus does is he reveals himself. And the significance is that Jesus knows where his followers are. He knows what they need. He reveals himself. Jesus is going to graciously meet Peter where, where he is. Again, this is where we've seen, we began the book. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All of that's true. But we could have no knowledge of that. We could have no experience of that if not for verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is always the pattern. God always reveals himself to man. God is never discovered by man. The darkness doesn't find the light. The light shines in the darkness. So where do we find Peter and the disciples? Verse 2 and 3. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Peter and the disciples have traveled back to the Sea of Galilee. This is where they are from. This is where they grew up. This is where they have worked. This is where they have had most of their adult life. What are they doing? Peter's still asking the question, what do I do now? Peter's uncertain, he's lost. And so Peter says, I'm going fishing. We see a glimpse of Peter's influence here when Peter says, this is what I'm going to do. And all the other disciples said, me too, we're gonna go. There's a level of uncertainty for all of them. They don't know yet what the next step is. You need to know that there is some disagreement regarding this passage in the interpretation Some people see this as the disciples abandoning the commission. Because what Jesus last told them in chapter 20, he gave them a commission. He said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And then we next see them fishing. On the other side, some people are like, nope, that's not what's happening here at all. It's just a commentary on the next time that Jesus meets his disciples. The reality is, I think it's somewhere a little bit in between. I don't think that it is this deep um, element where the the disciples are abandoning. They're, They're just done with everything that Jesus is doing. But nor do I think nothing's going on. The reality is that there are times where we don't know what to do next. We're uncertain. And, and, and we're not throwing the disciples under the bus here. They had far less than what we have. They, They don't have the rest of the New Testament to explain, this is what you do next. They're still going to write that. But they're in this moment, 
everything has happened so fast. They've only seen Jesus two times. They're now in a different place. And they're uncertain. So they look at the guy that's always been the one to make the decisions. And Peter's like, I'm going fishing. And one of the reasons I think that there's something more going on here, and I'm not saying that there's anything negative about fishing, Pastor Billy. Yeah, fishing was work for them. But this isn't something that needed to happen. I have to go fishing. It was, a, it was something that they decided that moment. Peter's like, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, we don't really know what else we're supposed to do, so we'll go with you. But what has been one of the themes that John has used throughout his entire gospel to give us hints about something more going on? Nicodemus, and it was night. Judas, and it was night. Mary, it was still dark. What time are they fishing? It was night. They go out. What happens? They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Think back about what's happened before. What did Jesus do during his final week before his death? He prepared them to live for him even when he was no longer with them. He sent them. He called them to a love like his. He called them to serve. He told them that they would be hated because of their actions. That the way in which they followed Christ would lead to the hatred of the world. He called them to proclaim Christ. Think back about Peter and the disciples' first interaction with Jesus after the resurrection. He comforted them. He said, peace be with you. He commissioned them. As I, the Father sent me, I'm sending you. He gave them the capacity in that, and he said, here is the Holy Spirit. He charged them. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. They have a great calling. In light of all of that, if we finish chapter 20, is this where we would expect them to be in chapter 21? No. We would expect Acts 2. Acts 2 is what we would expect, where they're going out and proclaiming these incredible things, where the nations are coming to Christ. But right now they're fishing. But here's the beautiful part of that. Jesus meets them where they are. Jesus doesn't look at them and say, oh, I'm done. I'm so tired. How many times do I have to go after you? How many times are you like a sheep that wanders that I have to go and pull out of a hole again and again and again? No, once again, Jesus goes to where they are. Peter's unsure of what to do next. He might even be seeking some comfort in the things he knows. I don't know much, but hey, maybe I can just go fishing. I know how to do that. And then they catch nothing. All night, working, laboring, no fish. But Jesus reveals himself to them. Remember that whole theme, light and dark? Look at verse four, what happens? Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. The disciples have fished all night, but now the sun is rising. Jesus is waiting on the shore. 
Last time they saw him, they were in a locked room in Jerusalem. They're not expecting this right now. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? I love the humor here. First of all, Jesus already knows the answer to that question. Now, I enjoy fishing, not quite to the point that Pastor Billy enjoys fishing, but there is one question you never want to hear after a long time of catching no fish. Any fish? If you have worked, and not just like, they're not just rod and reel out there having a good time. This is labor. They are using nets. You know, it says later that that, uh, Peter had stripped off his robes. This is work. All night. Failure. All of their efforts have not led to fruit. Jesus says, any fish? I think we can get a glimpse into how much they appreciated the question and the curtness of their answer. They answered him, no. (laughs) Jesus already knew that their venture was fruitless. He knows where Peter is. He knows what Peter's going through. He knows that Peter still hasn't recognized him for who he is, but he's about to change that. As Jesus is fond of doing throughout all of his ministry, Jesus does another fish miracle. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. I'm not really sure why the disciples obeyed uh, considering they didn't know who it was that was speaking to them. And I will say that the second thing you don't want to hear from someone else, the first is, did you catch anything? The next one is advice on how to do your job. And yet Jesus tells them, cast it on the other side. And for whatever reason, they do it. And it overwhelms them in how much is now brought in. All night they couldn't do it. Jesus shows up, fills the net. And it clicks for John. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. We get a little bit of the old Peter here, right? A little bit of that. It's Jesus, dives in. And, and, and like I said before, I, I don't think that this is that full abandonment that people have seen because if it's truly the full abandonment of like, we're done, J- Peter's not running to Jesus in that moment. But see, Peter, Peter knows that not everything's right. Peter knows that, that there's still some things that need to be resolved. But Peter also knows that that's going to happen in the presence of Jesus. When they got out on on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Peter took them fishing. Peter has done this his whole life. If there was an expert guide for fishing on the Sea of Tiberias, it's going to be Peter, and yet his results have produced nothing. But what Christ is showing is his love, his power, his provision. Peter, 
I'm the way. Now, I want to be careful here. I, I, I don't want us to misapply this to think, hey, cast your net on the other side. Just cast your net on the other side. That, there's there's, there's a, a, a harvest there that you could never imagine. Because ultimately, they're going to cast their nets aside. They're going to be done with this. And they're not ending where it's like, man, if, if it were me and I was trying to convince them, hey, I have something else for you, I would have left them catching no fish. Yeah, why'd you give up fish? Well, that dried up. No more fish. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus gives them plenty. Jesus gives them more than they've ever had. And yet they still choose Jesus because where he is leading them is far better than that. There's a lot of discussion on the significance of how many fish were caught. And I will be honest, I couldn't even comprehend half of the arguments. The, the explanation of all of the different things of, well, it comes from this and all the math that had to be done. I'm going to just tell you what I think. Billy, do you know how many fish you caught in Alaska? Okay. You know, like, I went to, to Canada once to fish. I caught 52 pike in, a year, in, in the week. I know. That's just one of the things. You catch a lot of fish. It's showing what Jesus did. It was miraculous. It revealed himself. Jesus invites them to share that meal. When they got out on land, it, we said that. And, and then he says, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Why does John mention that none of them dared ask? It's a little strange, right? There's almost an, an element that there's still some awkwardness. There's still a little bit of apprehension in what's done. Peter's not the only one that's failed. And who in this moment, if we were earlier in the gospel, who would be taking the lead in this moment to get the conversation going? Peter. Peter would be saying something right now. But Peter's got something still going on in his heart. He's, he's not quite there yet. But Jesus is going to fix that too. Here's what I want to see, though, though, first about this. There are going to be times where we're not sure what the next step is. Maybe it's because of a lack of information. Again, the disciples don't have the rest of the New Testament. Maybe that's part of what's keeping us from going, in which case, the information is here for us. We don't have the same excuse. Maybe it's because moving forward is a little bit scary. I know how to do this thing. I'm more comfortable over here. The reality is we need to follow. That's where Jesus is going to go. The call that he's going to give them is follow me. What do I do now? Follow me. But the beauty of our Savior is that he does not just say, do these things. Look, I'm going to stand up here. Do as I say. No, do what I did. As I was sent, so I send you. I have given you an example to follow. Follow me. If Jesus left it up to ourselves, we're going fishing. 
We don't have the strength to follow his commands. We need a savior who will meet us where we are. And that's what we see in Jesus. There is a comfort here. Jesus goes to them. He's already told them these things. He's already told them these things multiple times. But see his patience. See his care. See his power. See his provision. He comes to them where they are. Jesus graciously meets us where we are to lead us where he wants us to be. Don't think that Jesus is just going to meet us where we are and it's just for us to feel better. Hey, I'm going to meet you where you are so I can give you lots of fish. I'm going to meet you where you are so I can cook you a bed and breakfast. We can do something like that. I'm going to meet, no, no. I'm meeting you where you are because of your need to be where I want to take you. So how does Jesus now do that with Peter? When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Christ initiates the conversation. He turns to Peter. He knows where Peter's at. He knows the the emotional scars that Peter is feeling because of his own failure. Just, Just think with me through Peter's story over the last few chapters. Jesus says, I'm gonna wash your feet. You will never wash my feet. Jesus says, I'm going and you can't come with me. I'm going to come with you. God, Jesus, I would die for you. Peter, you're, you're going to deny me. In the other gospels, Peter says, even if all of them deny you, I will never deny you. Jesus says he's going to die. Peter pulls out a sword. Jesus tells him to stop. Peter denies him three times. Peter even goes fishing and it fails. Peter's lost. He's hurting. And Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The more than these, there's a couple of different interpretations or theories. There's usually three that it falls down to. The more than these, one could be, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? Uh, Out of the three options, that's the one that's easiest to say that's not what's going on. But the other two options are a little bit closer. One, One of them is, do you love me more than these disciples do? Meaning, is your love greater than their love for me? Are you more The other then is, do you love me more than these, these nets, these fish, these other things? It's not qualified here, so there's a good chance that Jesus is actually presenting both of these things because both of them are something that needs to happen in Peter's life. Peter, is this going to be the thing that you're going to stick with? Is this what you're going back to? Do you love me more than these things? Peter, what have your claims been so far about your love for me? I will die for you. I will lay my life down for you. Even if everyone else denies you, I will never deny you. What has Peter's opinion of his own love for God been? Way up here. This is what I'm willing to do. 
Now, we're not throwing Peter and saying, oh, Peter's so bad. John is sharing Peter because we all are Peter. We all do this. We all have a higher view of ourselves. We all think, okay, Jesus, I can make it most of the way on this journey. Every once in a while, I might need to phone a friend. Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter's pattern is pride. It's self-sufficiency that always leads to failure. He answers Jesus. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. There's another discussion here, and if you're understanding, there is a pattern as far as this chapter, that there are many, multiple things where there are different discussions. Um, in the Greek, and maybe, maybe your Bibles have a, an asterisk or, or something here that um, demonstrates this, there's different terms for love in, in Greek. And the three times that Peter answers, he uses one type of love. The first two times that Jesus asks, he uses a different kind. And then the last one, he actually matches Peter. Now, some people say it's not significant. It's just interesting how people talk and stuff. And, and quite frankly, John, more than pretty much all the other authors, uses a lot of synonyms. John has a big vocabulary. He likes to use all these different words. In our passage, we even see that. Sheep, lambs, he uses different tend, feed. Um, he uses different words in, in here. So then the question is, is there something significant in the use of terms? And I'll, I'll be honest and tell you that most commentaries say no. I happen to say yes. But the point being the point of this passage does not change based on that interpretation. Whether or not they're different terms doesn't change the overarching meaning, but I do see that it helps in understanding that meaning. Here's what Jesus is saying. Do you agape? It is, do you truly love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know that I, phileo, I have a brotherly affection towards you. Again, what has Peter's problem been? What's Peter's view of himself up to this point? Up here. Hey, I don't care what they do. This is what I'm going to do. Hey, you don't, you're not going to wash my feet. No, we're, we're not going to do He has all of this view, and yet Jesus now comes to him. Do you think all of those things are going through his mind? He says, Lord, you know. What, is, what, is, what does Jesus know? What did Jesus already tell him he was going to do? Peter, you're going to deny me. Lord, you know. You know I love you. I, I think what's happening here is that Peter is coming to terms with his own failures. Peter is coming to terms with his own inabilities. The Peter of the past would say, nah, let me tell you how I love you. Oh, I, I love you. This is all of the things I'm going to do for you, Jesus. Do I love you? Why do you even ask? Lord, you know. You know that I love you. 
here's whether or not you see different terms in the way that Jesus is asking or Peter's responding, here is where we can be confident. What kind of love is Jesus asking Peter about? It's the love that he has defined. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 15, 4 through 5, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What kind of love is Jesus asking Peter about? Do you love me according to my definition of love? Is there anyone here that can say yes to that? Do we love Jesus the way that he loves us? We don't. That's where we are in this journey. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know what? I think our loves kind of match. You love me, I love you, we're a great big family or something like that. No, his love is so much greater than ours. But he wants Peter to see his own limitations. Christ then gives him a charge. He said to him, feed my lambs. If you're Peter, and you've heard all of these things that Christ has said that you are supposed to do, but then you really mess up, do you think you're still part of the plan? Like naturally, humanly speaking. And and, and quite frankly, do we really need to use Peter as an example here? In your own life, when you have really messed up, have you thought, man, am I, am I still part of this plan? What does Jesus say? Peter, you're still part of it. Feed my lambs. Take care of them. Some of the lambs are the ones that are sitting around the fire. You're not supposed to be taking them fishing. Give them an example, which is what he's going to do in Acts 2. But before he can be the Peter of Acts 2, he's still the Peter of John 18, of John, and now we have the Peter of 21, which is a Peter that is being humbled. What does James say? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter is being humbled. But there's a comfort. You are still part of my plan, even in your failure. Yes, you have guilt, but I have grace. You have failures. I have forgiveness. That's the difference. Christ then asks him again, verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? Still that same term that he's using. And Peter responds the same way with his other term. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Shepherd them. Lead them. Have them follow you where I am leading. 
He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you, and this is the time where he actually uses the term that Peter used. And it could, it truly could just be synonyms that that are happening, but if it is synonyms, it's a little odd that it's in such a pattern. If it were just synonyms, we would imagine it being a little bit more random, but there's a pattern here. And he says, all right, Peter, I'm going to use your term. Do you love me? The way that you're saying it. Because you're willing to claim that you love me by your definition. All right, is that even true? Even if we lesser the standards of our response to God, are we even consistent in holding those? No. Even if we are a law unto ourselves, even if we bring a different standard, we're not even capable of holding that one. And what does Peter say? How does Peter respond? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? What's happening to Peter? Peter's seeing his brokenness. Peter is seeing his inability and he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter is submitting to Christ here. Peter is saying, God, God I, don't, I don't know. You know. This isn't the Peter of the past. This isn't the Peter that's followed those patterns of self-sufficiency and pride. This is the Peter in the present who's saying, God, you know. Have you ever wondered why Jesus asks him three times? Now, the normal, the first response is, what did Peter do three times? Denied him three times. I think that that's why that's, there's a big reason for that, why that's happening here, but I want to just give a caution in thinking that way. For us to think, well, wait a second, Peter denied three times, Jesus is going to ask three times, leads to this idea, well, I need to pay back whatever I've done. If I did messed up three times, Jesus is going to shame me three times. If I did this, this amount of times, then Jesus is going to make me rub my face in it three times. Is that how Jesus deals with our sin and shame? No, what did we sing? You shouldered my shame. If Jesus was wanting to make it equal, we could never do it. We could never even come close to comprehending all that he has done for our failures. Why then does Jesus ask three times? It's not because, Peter, I just really want you to feel how deeply you hurt me. I want you to understand what that felt like. No, he asks Peter three times because that's what Peter needs. Jesus meets Peter where he is in order to lead him where he wants him to be. Where Peter is, is still in some semblance of self-sufficiency. And Jesus is breaking that down, not because he wants to shame Peter, but in Peter's brokenness is where Christ is going to do something miraculous. Isn't it true that it is in our brokenness that Christ does some of his best work? When we finally see the depth of our depravity, we can see the height of his majesty. 
If we're putting ourselves close to that platform with him of like, yeah, he's a little bit above me. We're not truly seeing Christ for who he is. But when Peter sees, I'm nothing, you're everything, that's where Christ can do something amazing. Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Does Jesus respond the three times with nouns or verbs? Verbs. What has Jesus already said? If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. This is not a noun. This is a verb. There is an action that we're supposed to take. It is actually following him. It is following the pattern that he has established. And then Jesus gives him a comfort that at first glance you might think doesn't seem comforting to me. Look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. That doesn't seem very comforting. The idea, what would have been understood by the readers is stretch out your hands. He, he was going to be crucified. And for the readers of the, the Gospel of John, that's already happened. John writes this after Peter's already died. So it's likely that the readers have even heard about this. Why would that be comforting to Peter? What did Peter say before? I will die for you. That's how I'm going to express my love. But he doesn't die for him. He denies him. He thinks in his own strength he will die for him, but in his own strength he denies him. But now he comes to this point and now he's in the strength of Christ. He is under Christ. And now Christ says, Peter, you will die for me and you won't deny me. This is to show the way that Peter was going to glorify God. That's where he wanted Peter to go. Peter, you're still back here, but this is where you're going to go. That's a comfort. Have you ever had, I don't recommend this, but they, there used to be this time in like youth camps and stuff and it, like, or tracks and it would be a gun. What would you say if they asked you about Jesus? And it was like this big thing of, of doing emotions. And yet sometimes... There was this thing where you would, would wonder, man, how would I respond if someone put a gun to my head and said, are you a follower of Christ? What comfort for Peter to know, Peter, you're going to stay the course now. You're going to have some issues still, but for the most part, you're going to do what I said because you're finally follow, following me in my strength. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. That question, what now? What do I do now? What am I supposed to do now? That's the answer. If you have placed your faith in Christ alone, the answer is follow me. When Jesus says, when, when John says that we will have life in his name, usually we think of that in the negative, in a double negative, never dying. That's what life in his name is. We will not die. Two negative things. No, we will finally live forever. That's what that is. Finally living means following. We get to actually do something. We were dead, but now we're alive. 
follow me. I, I don't know your story, but I do know you've failed. I failed. I know that you have not followed Christ the way you should. Christ is willing to meet you where you are. Follow him. Christ already knows about your guilt and shame. When did Jesus know that Peter would deny him? Before Peter did it. Did Jesus know that while he hung on the cross? Yes, he paid for it. It's dealt with. But it still needs to be dealt with in our lives to move forward. Yes, Jesus has paid for our sins on the cross. And yet for us to get past the guilt of failure, we need to see the grace of his forgiveness. Come to him. Lord, you know everything. Who am I? Save me. Peter then turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and, and had said, Lord, who is, it, who is it that is going to betray you? So this is John. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? That's often another thing that stops us from doing what we're supposed to doing, be doing. What about, uh, what about him? I don't know. Like, I mean, we're willing to say how I'm going to die. Like, you want to share the love a little bit? How often do we stop following Christ because we're so distracted by what other people are doing? Yeah, Jesus, I'll be right there. I just need to... I, can, you, can, you believe, oh, shoot. Uh, can you believe what that guy's doing? We get so distracted by others. We are all called in the same way to follow Christ. How we follow Christ is going to be different. The call that I have in working in this church does look different from the practical application of your call. And yet we are all called to follow. And thankfully, you don't have to follow in the exact same way I'm doing because I'm not supposed to be leading you in that way. We're both supposed to be looking at Jesus. And Jesus is going to show you that. Now, Please understand, I'm not saying that this is so individualistic that you should never consider others and talk and, and say iron sharpen iron and say, hey, am I supposed to be doing this? Uh, two weeks ago, I had someone come into my office and it was a wonderful thing as a pastor. And they said, listen, I think that this is, might be where God is leading me. What do you think about that? Wonderful. It's not where God's leading me. We can't all be serving in every single place. God does have specific calls for us. And that's what Jesus is showing Peter here. What is that to you? You follow me. Look what he says. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't get distracted by the way other people are following if that is stopping you from following. Now, if you're looking at the way others are following and that is motivating you, like we see in Hebrews 12 and looking at 11, look at this great hall of witnesses. See their example. Therefore, we should look at others in that way, but we shouldn't look at others and say, wait a second, you asked me to give up that. Why didn't you ask them to give it up? You asked me to sacrifice in this way. Why don't they have to sacrifice? 
How often is the joy of following lost because we're looking at others instead of looking at Christ? Jesus corrects Peter and John corrects the, uh, the readers because he says, that, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And then we come to the conclusion, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the, that, the books that would be written. And you know what's so wonderful? That it didn't end there. That's not the end. It could not contain all the things that Jesus is still doing. It could not contain the truth that Jesus didn't just meet them where they are. Jesus is still meeting us where we are. But now what? Are we going to follow? He doesn't need to reveal himself to us. It's his grace. Jesus graciously meets us where we are to lead us where he wants us to be. Are we following? Are we stopping and doing other things because we're distracted, because we don't know, because maybe this is more comfortable? Or are we following? Are we hiding in shame because of our past failures? Or are we following? Are we distracted by the way that God has called other people? Or are we following? You could be thinking, but Stephen, there's so much I don't know. I'm not sure what life in his name is supposed to look like. That's okay. He's provided for our ignorance. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. But but Stephen, I, I don't know what's going to happen if I follow him. It's uncomfortable. This is what I know. This is what I understand. Yeah, it is hard. No one has said that living by faith is easy. In fact, Jesus told us that it would be hard. But he also provided a greater comfort. He has given us his spirit. He has given us his peace. But but Stephen, you you don't understand. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how I failed. You, You don't know how many times I've had that conversation with people. How many times have I said, this is who Jesus is. You don't know. This is my past. What you're doing is you're making your past greater than Christ. Your failure is greater than his forgiveness. Your guilt is greater than his grace. That's law, a lie. I don't know everything that you've done, but Jesus knew it before he ever went to the cross and he's already paid for it. But Stephen, what about everyone else? What is this path I'm being called to? Why is this burden being placed on me? Because this is the way that God chose to be glorified in you. Don't worry about everyone else. Don't worry about the way God chose to be glorified through their call. You follow. But Stephen, I I can't. I don't have the strength. This is beyond me. Amen. I don't have the strength either. Left to my own devices, I will abandon him every 
time. But Jesus meets us where we are. Jesus comes alongside of us right here. He's not waiting down the road for us to reach him by our own merit because that will never happen. We are incapable of reaching him on our own. If you are in a place where you have seen the reality of your depravity, you have realized your inability, praise God, because God does some of his best work in our brokenness. In our brokenness, give it all to Jesus and follow his lead. Lift your eyes from your depravity and see his majesty. Now what? Now we follow. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. Jesus graciously meets us where we are to lead us where he wants us to be. And that concludes the gospel of John.